Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 425. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 425 you're listening to. My guest today is engineer mixer, as well as chief engineer and manager over at Power Station New England, located in Waterford, Connecticut. I'm talking about Evan Bakke, who's worked with people like Prince, Jake Huffman, and Chuck Lee. We're going to talk about his journey in audio, as well as his time now at the Power Station in New England. Evan Bakke, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about... Collectives. Some time ago, former WCA guest Katie Tavini made a second appearance alongside Stephen Carrison. And I'm spacing on the number, I apologize. But they came on the show to talk about really their collective. And that collective being called Weird Jungle. You can go check it out at weirdjungle.com. But essentially what it is, it's a collective of independent mastering engineers who kind of pool resources, have a common website, share ideas, and have kind of a, a way to attract clients depending on what the client's taste are. I thought that was really novel. I thought it was really interesting. So what did I do? Well, I went and made my own collective. That's right. So I have teamed up with Rado Peter and McKay Garner, who have both been on the show and both who live in the Bay Area, and we have created what we call the Golden Gate Mixers, or Golden Gate Mixers. We're still getting it all together, but essentially, you know, it's the same concept, except we're offering stereo mixing, stereo mastering, and Atmos mixing. You know, we're kind of figuring a a bit of it out in terms of how we will work with one another to field work, you know, because essentially the idea is, is that work will come in to the website or through the Instagram page or through the Facebook page. Yes, we have completely done all of that proactively and all of us, you know, have access to it and we're all working on it in various capacities. We're just trying to make it so that people come to a central location, they look through the three of us and kind of go, all right, I'm going to work with this one or this one or this one. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like going to engineers or sound better and picking who you're going to work with, except it's a lot smaller, <laughs> considerably smaller. You have three choices and um, we're going to see how it works. And with anything like this, I feel like, you know, there's really nothing to lose. You know, if it works out really well, great. If it doesn't, you move on, right? It's just like the Atmos thing. I always say, hey, worst case, I've got a bunch of speakers to sell. No big deal. It's just you got to try stuff. And I maybe that's really at the core of my rant here is if you think something could work for you, just try it. Don't worry about asking people's permission. Don't go to all your friends and go, what do you think about this? And have them talk you out of it. Just go for it. Just do it. You want to do something nutty in your studio? Do it. You want to do something crazy with your career, but you think it's a great idea? Do it. Yeah. Just, yeah. Don't ask for permission from anybody. Now, you might ask, well, why did I pick Rado and McKay? Well, I really respect Rado and McKay. Not like there's others I don't respect, but I just felt like I could really hang with those guys on a continual basis. And every time I end up talking to them, it ends up being for a fairly long time. So not, they aren't quick conversations. And I kind of feel like, you know, while we all obviously are going to do our thing completely different from one another, I feel that there's a commonality there of how we're going to do stuff, right? We want to do it really well. We want to take care of people. You know, I wouldn't ever hook up with anybody I thought was, you know, a scam artist or anything like that. I think that these are two solid guys that I'm really happy that uh, we're partnering up. And we maintain our independence in, in the course of it. You know, it's, it's not like I have to pass my mixes or my masters by those guys. We can help influence each other and we can help each other get better. And I really love that idea. So, you know, if you think you want to steal this idea, 
that's what we did. We just took, ex we looked at Weird Jungle and we said, that's a great idea. We should do that. We should totally do that. So after a few conversations and then, hey, I got the website together kind of thing, that's when it really was starting to take off. Now I say that, I don't quite have the website together. We're still working on that, but you can go over to uh, Instagram and follow us. We're at Golden Gate Mixers. We wanted to make it very Bay Area centric because, you know, that's who we are. We are Bay Area engineers and we feel like, while we're not the only representatives of the Bay Area, we... Uh, the Bay Area and all of the other engineers in the Bay Area greatly influence us. So yeah, so that's what I've been up to. Collectives, I think it's a good idea. Let me know if you decide to try it in your area. I'd be really curious to hear how it goes. But that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Evan Bakke here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Evan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to have you here. So we met, for the audience, we met because of a mutual friend, Brett Bullion. And Brett and I know each other because we were at Mixed with the Masters together in 2017. He introduced me to you and be because we wanted to have an Atmos talk. So that's the background there, audience. That's how Evan and I know each other. Let's get into your background. Where did you grow up? Well, as a young kid, I was in, it was on the East Coast. I was born in Massachusetts, but in the 90s, I moved to Minneapolis. So I spent you know, most of my formidable years in, in Minneapolis, in the suburbs, and went to a music production school in downtown Minneapolis when I was young. Mm. How young were you? Well, I just graduated high school. So it was, oh, I think okay. I was still just turned 18 when I started there. It's a school called IPR, 
what drove that decision to go to go to a production school like that? I mean, I was I was not a good student, first of all. <laughs> I mean, I just just to be totally honest, but yeah, neither was I. I was in bands, really pretty crappy bands that would we would play around Minneapolis, and then um, we had setups in our basements where we would record on sonar and and whatever. And and I saw a commercial that said there was a music production school starting in Minneapolis. There's a school called Music Tech, which has been around for a while. It's called McNally Smith now. So this was starting in Music Tech's old building, which was like Warehouse District, Minneapolis, and somehow convinced my dad that it was a good idea. And he was into it. And my mother was into it, which was extremely surprising. And I started in 2003. And tell me about that program. Well, it was small. I think there were there were less than 100 students at the time. The school's actually just shutting down right now after 20 years, which is a little bit sad. It was started by Tom Tucker, who was pretty instrumental in building Paisley Park. Oh, yeah. And Jack Robinson, who passed away while I was attending there. And then a guy named Lance Sabin, who was, who was in uh, the 80s band Slave Raider. I don't know if you remember those guys. I don't the know singer that had band. Like, <laughs> He, he, the singer wore a patch, had like a glass eye. <laughs> it, was, it was like very, very hair metal 80s band. <laughs> and the the instructors at the school were incredible. I mean, there were a lot of ex-Paisley Park engineers and some young up-and-coming producers and engineers. A lot of those guys are still working. And actually, Fluff, who was on your show not long ago, he was one of the instructors there. And I met Fluff. And Fluff was partners with a guy named Matt Kirkwald, who both of them are still good friends of mine. They had a production company called World Record Productions, and I was their assistant for four years. I took Fluff out for coffee and asked him if I could do an internship, and he kind of said no. (laughs) But then one day I just, I ran into him and I was feeling slightly down about what I was learning in school, I, I felt as though I had plateaued and was just kind of cruising towards the end and didn't really have much clarity as to to what I was going to do. And he was like, I'm mixing tomorrow. You're more than welcome to come and be there, but you can't leave if you come. <laughs> so, okay. So I was, I basically, I, I showed up at Master Mix Studios, which was a SSL 4000 studio where he, he always mixed on SSLs at that time. And I think he forgot that I was even going to be there. He just showed up and was like, huh? <laughs> what are you doing here? And so I, I kind of did basic internship stuff during that session where, where I'd run, grab food and sharpen pencils and take notes. Hmm. And then Fluff worked really, really long hours. He was, he was kind of like a show up at the studio at 9 a.m. And I don't really remember leaving before one or two in the morning during those sessions. Wow. For a long time, for, for years, that guy's got a really incredible work ethic. And he had an assistant named Smaz who had an additional full-time job. And at some point he kind of saw the writing on the wall that we were getting busier. And he just said, give that stuff over to Evan. So I took over as Fluff and Matt's full-time assistant for four years and we bounced around to a couple different studios in Minneapolis that we would track at and a couple different studios with SSLs that we would mix at. And then they had this small production room called the Boiler Room in in the bowels of a radio building in Minneapolis that we did all the overdubs in. So that that was really my beginning is learning from those guys just what it's like to be a studio rat. Yeah, so the school just kind of whets your appetite a bit, but fluff and and matt and the work that they created or participated in really trained you appropriately right they were really doing a lot of the great rock bands in minnesota at the time they were doing all the cool young stuff a couple of their bands that they were working on got signed to major labels and so i i mean i just i had my eyes on those guys for a while you know i really wanted to work from them or just just learn from them just be in the room with them and Matt is an amazing producer. He still does amazing work. And Fluff, Fluff and Matt were kind of like the, the kings of like the rock and roll, pop rock music scene in Minnesota at the time. Huh. 
so I, when I got the opportunity, I took it really seriously, you know, made no dough, but that's, you know, I've really learned what it's like to make a record from those guys. And I still, I still go back to a lot of the stuff that they were doing back then. Now, 20 years later. Making no dough at that time, I guess, I mean, what you're in your late teens, early twenties. So yeah, I was 19 when I started. Yeah. And I would supplement it. What was I doing back then? I would find odd jobs. They would give me 50 or a hundred bucks when they could. When we were mixing, I would get paid an assistant rate and that was always just incorporated in their budgets. But if I wanted to be a part of the process from start to finish during the tracking and stuff like that, there was no extra cash floating around for me. What kept you there? At any point, did you kind of scratch your head and go, yeah, I don't know. I'm not making enough money. How am I going to survive? Why am I staying here? Did you ever question it? Well, yeah, mostly because I needed the money, but it wasn't because of the environment. I knew really, really clearly that what I was learning was more valuable than the money would have been. And that's, I mean, that's paid off. Like, I, I think that I would not be where I am right now without those guys. So, I mean, yeah, I questioned it on the financial side and brought it up to him every once in a while, but it was never like a serious issue. I was just a, a young adult figuring it out. You know, I didn't really know any other way at that point anyway. So were you still living at home? I had an apartment outside of Minneapolis, small place. I mean, it was cheap enough. I mean, my, my expenses at that time were next to nothing. So I could do odd jobs here and there and, and make my way. You stayed with Fluff and Matt for four years? Four years. Yep. And what was the cause of moving on from that? Matt moved on first. Matt had some other stuff going on that he was ready to focus on. And Fluff and I then moved over to a different studio with a guy named Jeremy Tapero, who had a, a studio called Pound Sound in St. Paul, which is an amazing spot. And that's kind of where the moving on started to speed up a little bit. Jeremy and I we decided to make a record together. I think it was his band called Attention. And we just had a really a, a good time. We had, a, we had a very similar thought process on how studio hanging and, and recording would go. It was just fun. And, we, you know, we really saw eye to eye on a lot of things. And he was in a band called Gratitude that spent, I think they spent like three or four months at cello with Jim Scott doing an album. Mm. And so... He walked away from that going like, Jim is the man. Jim the way is that Jim, the man. <laughs> the way that Jim does it is the way that I want to do it. And I saw the way that he was doing it and I was like, yeah, that's the way that I like to do it. So Jeremy and I teamed up for a couple of years. I mean, I, I probably have recorded more songs with Jeremy than maybe anybody else. He's like a great engineer, producer, songwriter, drummer, bass player. He plays bass in Soul Asylum now, actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which is funny because, you know, when I think of Minneapolis, I think of three bands. I think of Soul Asylum, The Replacements, and Prince. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and Dave Perner, he's still going strong. They tour and he writes. And so, yeah, Jeremy's cool. Jeremy's, Jeremy's real cool. You would like him. I want to backtrack a bit talking about Jim Scott and how Jim does things. Is that to say Jim does things the way that you know, you guys wanted to mimic that. Was that live on the floor, everybody playing at once? Is no, it no, it wasn't really even that. It was more just like tapestries on the walls. Oh, the aesthetic of there the was, studio. It was it was an aesthetic thing, but it was also just like the aesthetic of, of our personalities coming together where it was like eliminating the stress of high pressure environments, you know, and just being a part of it and making it cool. Like it was not... There were no arguments anymore. It was just like a, a very relaxed environment and hardworking. We worked super hard. We were night owls. So typical day with Jeremy, we'd start at, I don't know, one or two in the afternoon and get home around four in the morning and back at it. Like it was just nonstop. We just kept going. So yeah, when I, th when I talk about Jim Scott, it's not like bike techniques or live on the floor or analog versus digital. It was more just like, you walk in the room and you want to be there. That was the main thing. Yeah. Sounds like your years there in Minneapolis were super informative and tons of experience. Yeah. Yes. And it didn't really end there either. I think that my 20s, when I think back on them, are, are slightly, it's slightly hard to piece it all together at this point. But 
somewhere in between there, I lived out of my car and I moved to the New York area. I ended up working at a studio in Connecticut called The Carriage House. And then I ended up in Chicago for a little while. So I, I bounced around a lot. So I wouldn't say it was like all in Minneapolis. I just like, I was constantly just chasing whatever I could and just trying to figure out a, a way to, to just keep moving forward and recording music, which is a difficult thing to do starting out anyways, but doing it with no real uh, home base is, is also pretty tricky. Yeah. Tell me about living in your car. Yeah, I had a Honda Civic, 1994 Honda Civic, two-door. Hatchback? Not a hatchback, but I would put the back seats down, put my feet in the trunk, and then lay in between the front two seats, with, put my head in for, between the front two seats, and that's where I would sleep. I mean, I did that on purpose. I, I really, I just wanted to go explore and chase some sort of adventure. And it seemed like I ultimately ended up back in Minneapolis most of the time at that point. It just seemed like that was that was where the work was. That's where, that's where my friends were. I hope that those times living in your car, I hope, I hope that was in the summertime. There were some cold days. Okay. <laughs> there was there were some fall days up in 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 upstate New York that I <laughs> could have used a little extra comforter in the car. But I mean, I would I wasn't actually homeless. I just I was choosing to just to try it out and and try and find something. I actually ended up interviewing to be Russell Elevato's assistant at Electric Lady. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened. I didn't get it, obviously, but we got along really well. Kind of thought I was going to get it. <laughs> Someone else did. And it didn't happen. Didn't happen. Every once in a while, I look back and think like, man, that would have been, that would have been sweet. That guy is, that guy's amazing. Yeah. So I did that. And then in 2009, I got through a mutual friend. There was a band in La Paz, Bolivia that asked me to go to Bolivia to record and mix their album, which I ended up doing. And to make an extremely long story short, I ended up moving there for a year and a half and built a studio, which was actually in Che Guevara's old house. It was like, there was this little neighborhood called Amor de Dios, which was back then was like a town in the middle of nowhere. Now it's kind of like a suburb, but that's where Che would train his rebel armies. And then we ended up buying that house we built a studio in it and I spent like a year training a couple guys how to use it and just to keep the, keep the work going after I left. We got to pause for a sec. That's kind of yeah. weird. Yeah, it was wild. Yeah, it was insane. That was, that was like one of those situations where I, I just kept saying yes to them and just kept on staying there and didn't really mean to. <laughs> and it, was it comfortable? No, oh, yeah. I had a room in the house. I had basically had the whole bottom floor. I had all my needs taken care of. I kind of had like a, a monthly stipend that I would get. And then we did some pretty good records down there, actually. In some Che Guevara's cool house. In Che Guevara's house. Yep. Damn, that's weird. Yep. Super simple setup. I mean, it was like there was a control room and a live room. And the control room was just a variety of preamps that would just go straight into Pro Tools. Were, I, I, I'm sorry to dwell on, on Che Guevara's house, but were people coming by? Like saying, oh, I used to know him or taking pictures in front of the house. Was it a touristy no, type spot? No, no, no. It's like, it, like, it's a very inconspicuous location at this point. It's just a neighborhood now. Mm. And the house itself is probably slightly different. I, I think the house when he was there was just one level, kind of like a, was like a, a stone house. And now there's a top floor with the studio and then like this garden area. So it's, I think it's, I don't think it's really reflective of what it was like when he was there. Yeah. You know what I mean? What are the challenges of making records in a country like Bolivia? The siestas. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, it, but you just got to embrace it. You, there's a, it's slow and they know it and they're okay with it. And if you try and fight it, that's, I tried to fight it often and that didn't work. And so eventually I just kind of embraced it. Also, when I was there, the World Cup was going on, so there was zero work getting done during the World Cup. Right. Lots of yeah, lots none. of drinking and watching World Cup. A lot, yeah. Lots of nap taking while in between games. Wow. Making records in Bolivia, 
Why did you keep saying yes? You indicated to me that you said yes, even though that wasn't your intention. Was it just a comfortable situation and kind of an interesting adventure? Yeah, I think it was just more of like an interesting adventure, really. I kind of began to make this like, it's a little bit of a family down there where the guy that I was working with for the most part was a guy named Mauricio. He kind of became like my brother, really. Like he's still one of my best friends. The situation was just more interesting than it was comfortable. Like all of a sudden had great friends of his family and I would call his aunts and uncles, aunt and uncle and his parents and his siblings and cousins. It was like this very unique opportunity to learn a whole new side of life that otherwise I'd never would have been able to. And and I think I just kept on scratching this curious itch and couldn't stop and Eventually, it didn't really make sense just to stay there, and I think I probably could have just moved there at some point and just stayed, but that wasn't really that interesting to me, and just as far as what I wanted to do with my life, I didn't want to stay in South America, but I think I could have, and it probably would have been a good experience if I did. Where did you go from there? Well, I went and stayed in in Massachusetts with a friend of mine who lives in Western Massachusetts and he's really close to some great rivers. And I took a little bit of an extended break from recording music and just got back into living in the United States and just spent a lot of time just fishing and unwinding. And then after like a summer of that, I think I got there in the late winter, early spring. And then in August, I just packed my stuff up and I went to Nashville and I thought I would try and just kind of show up there. And I love Nashville. I really love Nashville, but it, I, I was not in the right place at that time. I was not interested in staying there. Although I'd feel like those times were important for me, not for recording music, but just more just like for my brain to experience that. And then I went back to Minnesota and started making records again with Jeremy at his studio, Pound Sound. And at that point started to kind of feel like I was ready to get out of Minnesota for good. And I actually planned on going back to Massachusetts again. The morning that I was going to leave, I think, or the next day, I stuck around for an extra day to say goodbye to some family. And I got a text message from Kirk Johnson, who was Prince's personal manager. And he said that he needed somebody that could run the SSL. And I ended up going out to Paisley Park that afternoon and then that, that opened up a whole different <laughs> situation than I was expecting. And I ended up working there for off and on for about a year and a half. And it was, it was kind of my main gig for about nine or 10 months. For Prince? Working for Prince. Yeah. Yeah. He had his band Third Eye Girl at that time. And I was doing a lot with them. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled.
sampley.app. Check it out. Well, you got to share your Prince experience. Yeah, I mean, that that was, I, I think that, you know, in many ways, it was probably the most important experience of my life. The way that it started, as far as I know, it was just supposed to be for one night. And I've, I've told this story before, and I'll, I'll just tell it again. So, so basically, the way that it happened was Kirk said that he needed somebody who could run the SSL and run a tape machine. And I told him that I could work on the desk, but I didn't know how to use a tape machine. I just never done it before. And then he called me and was just like, if you could just help us get through the night. So I got there and everything that he was doing was to the tape machine. Like I, it was, there was a Pro Tools rig in the room, but it was not being used. So there was an engineer there who had his vocal chain set up and I asked this person what the vocal chain was and it showed me and it was just kind of like, oh, it's a very strange vocal chain. Like it didn't really make sense in my mind for anybody to use this vocal chain. So I just looked at Kirk and was like, can I change this? And he was like, yeah. And so he walked the other engineer out and walked me in. And I think that that was kind of like the changing of the card, even though I didn't really put the pieces together yet. And so I changed it. He had a C12. I put it through um, a Great River preamp and into a Blackface 1176. And then I turned around and Prince was just standing there. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, so what are you doing? And I was like, well, I've got your, your vocal going through this and this. And he goes, well, why aren't you using, why aren't you using this limiter? And he pointed to an LA2. And I was like, I can do that. And he was like, no, no, no. Why aren't you using it? And I was like, I I just thought maybe this would sound good on your vocal. And so he sat down and he put his headphones on and he started singing a little bit. If, If you don't understand Prince's vocal setup, he always had a C12 hanging on a boom stand over his console and he would do his vocals sitting down, singing right into it. And he would do his vocals alone and he had the tape machine controller just off to his right and a headphone box right next to that. And so when he sat down, the, the 1176 needle on it completely just pinned like 100%. Like, I don't think you could compress it even harder than it was. It was just like, I didn't even have it going through the speakers. He just had it in his headphones. And I was just like, oh, crap. And so I actually went down to back it off. And he said, don't touch anything. It's perfect. And I was like, all right, sweet. Wow. And so then I he asked me to... Actually, before he asked me to leave, he gave me a two-inch reel and just handed it to me. And he was like, we're going to work on this song. And I was just like, well, <laughs> I, I don't even know what to do with this. <laughs> you know, like I, so I, I just, I just took it into the machine room and I put it on. And I just like, I, I mean, I'd never done it before. I just put it on and it worked. And he hit play and was like, that's actually the wrong song. And so I took it off and then he gave me another one and put that one on and that one also worked and then he said can you come back later and at this point it was already you know nine or ten at night and i said yep i think he had most of his band members staying at this hotel right down the road but i think they actually got me a room there but i just ended up going to get a cup of coffee and chilling out like i just was trying to make sense of what was going on and then I think it was 3.30 in the morning, he called and asked me to come back. And I went back and I mixed the song that he was working on. Actually, it was a, it was a great memory. He, he was listening to the song, standing at the console, and he was kind of bobbing his head and he was just staring at me while we were printing it. He was just kind of looking at me, bobbing his head, kind of like, I don't, I don't know why he was staring at me. Like it was just, it was a very strange thing. But I, so I just walked over to the console and I just turned the volume all the way up and we just sat next to each other, bobbing our heads, listening to the mix. And <laughs> when he was walking me to the door, I actually told him, you know, like it was, it was strange. Like it, that first night was probably the least nerves that I had of every night that I worked with him. And I just told him, you know, that I liked the song and I actually did like the song. It was a really cool song. And then he asked me if I could clear my schedule and I pretty much did. And it was kind of on with him for a while. Wow. Yeah. Such a, uh, you know, and I, I think Fluff and I discussed this and Chuck Zwicky and I have talked about it. Mm-hmm. I know Chuck. Chuck's cool. What an experience working with Prince, huh? Like such a, a unique individual artist, unique in so many ways. 
what did you take away from him from any perspective after, I mean, after that time, looking back, what do you think holds in your mind when it comes to making records? I get like slightly, a little bit conflicted when I start to think about it because it, in reality, and whether you're a fan of his or not, doesn't really matter. I'm not personally a fan of most of his music. I've since become a fan of a lot of his music, but you know, I probably won't work with anybody as talented as he was again, which is a little bit of a, a strange thing to really think about. But I don't think that that's like a negative, and I don't think that that's saying that there aren't amazingly talented people out there and, and some that are probably more talented than he was. But there was something about him that nobody had. And it was kind of like Michael Jackson or James Brown. It was like there's just something that he had about him that no one else will ever have again. I think that's the biggest thing that I think about when I do think about him is that I had that opportunity to witness a lot of of great moments of him at his peak, I think, in a lot of ways. Maybe not his peak as far as like his hits and, and his fame, but he never stopped and never slowed down, even from when he was, you know, writing Purple Rain and all of those songs. He kept, I think, getting better at his craft. And he wasn't even that old, you know, like he was he was in his fifties when he died. And so I got to I got to really experience some amazing moments. And then, you know, like it wasn't all pleasant. And I think that you talk to most people who have worked with him it's a strange opportunity and strange circumstances and if he doesn't feel like the color of your shirt is working for him that day then he may just send you home what brought your your time there to an end i don't actually know he he ended up hiring another engineer this guy booker t who i think had some relation to like actual booker t in the mg's booker t and I'd never met him. I talked to him on the phone a handful of times and he was really, really a uh, cool guy, but he died. Like he got the flu and died. So then I went- The engineer. The engineer. Yeah. So then I, I ended up going back out again to work after he passed away. And then he hired another engineer or he went on tour. And then when he got back, he hired someone else. And then at that point, I just started getting calls from whatever engineer that was working out there that needed help. And I would go out and help every once in a while. So I did, it didn't really like come to an abrupt end. It just kind of fizzled out. And then I got married a year after I started working for him. And at that point, I was mentally on to the next thing. And I, I think that it just kind of turned into something different at Paisley Park at that point. I don't know. I don't really know what they were doing anymore, but I, I know he was still recording. And there was a guy named Jason who was his engineer. And it was like a, just a completely different creative moment for him. It wasn't the same like as when I was there anymore. And it just moved on. Well, let's talk about, and unless we're jumping too many points in time here, how did you wind up in Connecticut? Well, we came here so my wife could finish school. We moved to Bridgeport, Connecticut in 2015. And she finished her medical program in Bridgeport. And while we were here, we were really planning on going back to Minnesota. But when we were here, I found Power Station New England through a friend of mine, this guy, Mark Bengston, who actually used to be Michael Brower's assistant. He told me that I should go check it out. So I, I came to Power Station New England to visit and couldn't believe that it was like an actual power station in Connecticut. And so then I just found any excuse to start working here. And so I, I booked the room often and I did a lot of sessions for the studio, for the studio manager and whatever artists that were coming in. I kind of turned into like a little bit of like a resident engineer for about a year. And then the guy who was the studio manager moved on, went to do something else. And when that happened, the owners of the studio asked me if I would step in. And so I've been here, I've been here since, I guess that was summer of 2017. So I've been running the studio since then. And when you say you did, you didn't know it was an actual power station, meaning like a recreation of power station in, in New York. Yeah. So basically power station, New England is in many ways, like a replica of power station studio a in the city, which is like the, you know, the famous dome room. Right. So we've got 
the dome room itself is identical to New York. The isolation booths in the control room here are slightly different. They're a little larger here. I think we just have more room to work with, really, rather than being yeah. in like a a warehouse in in the city. But, you know, our console. We have an eighty sixty eight console, thirty two channels. I think the one in New York is forty. So I mean, there's there's a you know there's differences. It's not the exact same studio, but it's pretty pretty close. damn close. And yeah, and it's sweet. It's awesome. So you're chief engineer and studio manager. Yeah. You're carrying a lot of responsibility there. Yeah. I think that I enjoy it like this. I, mm -hmm. I don't think that I would just want to be a studio manager. And I think that learning these management skills has, has I think it's just been fun to experience it. And the, the way that I'm able to really function day-to-day, long-term, is to kind of look at this whole operation as my home studio <laughs> and run it in that fashion, you know. So uh, on the management side, obviously I need to I need to book it and I need to keep the gear working and figure out ways to progress as a company or as a, as a studio. But then I'm able to just kind of focus really heavily on the aesthetics here and the environment and just make it a unique experience to work here. And then on the engineering side, I push myself really hard to just get better and to be camped out in a room like this with the gear that we've got and to be able to push myself really hard with, with some really great musicians is, is just been an, my favorite experience of, of my professional career so far. I mean, it's an amazing thing and I feel extremely fortunate for the opportunity. Without getting into details, of course, in general, are you, are you just paid a salary or are you hourly? Like, how does that even work? How do you differentiate what you're making as studio manager versus chief engineer? And Yeah, I'm just paid a salary. So I, I just make a, a fee. Okay. And that's it. And so that doesn't change. That's the, the short answer. Yeah. And it's obviously in your best interest to make sure that that place stays booked as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or else it's not here anymore. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I may have missed it, but exactly what town is it in? It's in a town called Waterford. Waterford. Okay. If you were to follow Highway 95 down from Boston, we're essentially right in the middle of Boston and New York. I mean, we're, we're directly between. So I think that probably 50 to 60% of our work comes from New York mm -hmm. and the, and, you know, another 10% comes from Boston and the rest is kind of spread all over the place. This is a place that's got a lot of space, great for tracking bands, large situations. So is that primarily the clientele or are you getting a lot of people just, I can't imagine booking his place that big just to do vocal overdubs. Fairly rare that we would have anybody come in just to do vocal overdubs, but it does happen. A majority of our work is our, our bands, you know, full bands. We do a lot of rock bands and... We've done a handful of big band records and a lot of jazz from the city comes up here. And then, you know, occasionally we'll do corporate projects. You know, Zildjian was here at some point. They did this video series of, on a bunch of their drummers that they did over the springtime. That was pretty cool. But mostly bands. I mean, that was that was my focus from day one was, was just creating a place that bands could come and afford to work in a place like this. But it's not a residential studio. It's not a residential studio. Right. Because last time you and I talked, when we just had a one-on-one -on -one call, I think you told me there's a hotel down the street. There's a hotel about 300 yards from the door, maybe less. I mean, you could, you could probably hit a five iron to the hotel. <laughs> so so okay. less than 300. <laughs> you know, in this day and age with budget shrinking, that's a pretty big facility. I'm sure the cost of running it of electricity, heating, cooling, et cetera, can get up there. Plus, you know, they've got to pay you and whatever maintenance there is. So is it tough to get people to come to Connecticut to make records and spend money? Or is it attractive because it is such a big, beautiful place? Yeah, it's both. I mean, the, the hurdle and the, the, the biggest hurdle is always the location being far from the city. And this area of Connecticut doesn't really necessarily have like the most thriving mu music scene, although there are some great artists from around here. But yeah, I mean, the biggest, the biggest issue is just getting people here. And so, you know, I spent, 
It's been like the first full year that I was working here, just getting my friends to come here from the city. I think that that's the biggest trick is just getting people to come once. And once they come, they typically want to come back. As a facility, are you all concentrating exclusively on recording music or are you trying to branch out from and, and encompass not only music, but other things like is video part of the equation? Is, is content creation involved at all? I mean, the content creation comes from the clients and whatever they end up creating themselves, but we don't really, we don't really do any of that. I think that's like slightly by design. I don't know. Like we don't do any video here anymore. There used to be a video team that worked here that now is somewhere else. And so, yeah, I mean, the focus is, is really making records. And, and I think that so far we've been successful in that and, and we'll continue that as long as we can. And, you know, obviously we'll do a lot of different projects in here. It's, you know, it's not just making records, but I do a lot of mixing. I think, I, you know, I probably split my time between tracking and mixing fairly evenly. So I've got a mixing room here and Atmos is on the horizon here. So it's, it's not just recording, but this is the focus of Studio A mm-hmm. is getting bands in here, getting music in the air. And then as far as cost of living of Waterford, how's that? I mean, it's, it's this area in general, my, we, we live in the woods about 10 miles north of here. So, you know, our town is, the cost of living is really not bad compared to, you know, you think about Connecticut, it's easy to start to think about the New York metropolitan area of Connecticut, which is just like ridiculously expensive. And that's, that's where Connecticut's wealth really lies is in that area. And this area is very quaint New England feeling town and the, the cost of living's fairly cheap for the Northeast. As far as like keeping the recording side of your life happy and the family side of your life happy, cause you have a kid, right? I have two kids. Yeah. Yep. Two kids. Okay. So how do you balance in all that? It's tricky. It's very tricky. My kids love the studio. So any opportunity that, that I've got to bring them in to hang for a little bit, they're here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think my, my son, Ezra, who's three now, I mean, he knows, he knows more about the studio than quite a few people that have met and <laughs> that work in here. <laughs> Nothing's changed as far as how hard it is to work in the music industry being here. I mean, like I have a home base, which is great, but it's stressful. I work long hours and I have to work hard to keep this place going. But I also, you know, I try to just to be extremely focused when I'm at home with my family. I put a lot more value on the success of my family than I do of my career. And I think that that makes working easier and it makes me focus more when I'm at the studio and get done what I need to get done. So I have the ability to do that, to be a good father and a good husband. But you know, it's something that I try and, I try and just change my focus on my way to work and on my way home from work every day to just give everybody that I'm, that I'm working with in the studio the amount of attention that they need to walk away having an incredible experience and a great recording and then just do the same thing when I get home. Yeah. Well, and, in, and some people choose the opposite. Like they focus exclusively on their careers at the sacrifice of, of the family and, you know, to each his own, but I applaud you for trying to make sure that the family stays successful because that definitely, that foundation I feel helps, helps with the career. Well, yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. And I think, you know, I also just think about our youth and and the younger generations and and the young kids that are growing up into a strange world. And it just seems to be getting slightly stranger every day. Yeah. And to provide, you know, a little bit of a foundation on to be somebody to help them along the way is going to be, I think, valuable for them. Yeah. The parenting is, is like a whole nother podcast. Oh, I know. Yeah. Maybe in a, in, in another life, I'll have a parenting podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent, Evan. I will include a link in the show notes audience to Evan's website, which is evanbaki.com. That's E-V-A-N-B-A-K-K-E.com. But if you can't remember that, just go to the website, go to Working Class Audio. You can easily find it and feel free to reach out if you want to go and possibly book the power station, New England to, to go record. Evan, thank you so much for your time. It's great to hear your story and very fascinating journey that you've traveled. 
Thanks, man. Yeah, this is fun. I mean, I love your podcast. I've got, I've had a handful of friends on it, and it's just, I think you're doing a, a really good job. Well, thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks for being on it. I appreciate it. Yep. In the meantime, you take care, and we'll talk later. Sounds good. See ya. Okay. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Evan Bakke. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to remind you that it really helps the show out if you go to the place where you listen to the show and leave a five-star review. If there's an opportunity to write something nice, that helps as well. But anything along those lines will greatly benefit the show, and I would greatly appreciate it. But that's all for me today. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and that magical voice, Chuck Smith, at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Always feel free to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.